Welcome to Founders Focus, a podcast made for founders by founders. I'm Scott Case, CEO and co-founder of Upside, and I created Founders Focus to help share free resources and actionable advice. Together, we're building a community for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders to come together to tackle today's challenges. This podcast is powered by my awesome team at Upside. Please visit foundersfocus.com to join the live video sessions or to catch up on past topics. Excited to have Brett Schulman, who is the CEO of Kava, uh, based here in the DC uh, metro area. And um, as I'm going to let him describe it because do a better job. But for those of you who are uh, in a Kava zone, uh, it's a fast casual restaurant that's based on healthy Mediterranean food. And a lot of the products are also sold in, uh, in Whole Foods and other markets. Uh, but uh, without me doing a butcher job on Brett, I'm going to turn it over to Brett to uh, introduce himself. Yeah, hi, Scott. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me to he uh, here today. Uh, so I'm actually uh, went to high school in the DC area and uh, after college started in the finance world at a firm called Alex Brown, which was based in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and went through the Deutsche Bank or Bankers Trust and then Deutsche Bank mergers. Uh, and got to a point in my career where I realized that it felt like it was time to make the donuts every day. And my, my wife said to me, I really don't like Sundays at six o'clock. And I said, well, why? And she said, because you get in a miserable mood because you know you have to go to work tomorrow. And so I, I knew I needed to do something different. And that's when I kind of started on my entrepreneurial path as it would have it helping my wife uh, grow a natural snack food company, which uh, later on was acquired by Utz uh, Foods of Hanover, Pennsylvania, the potato chip company. And uh, along the way, got introduced to my current partners and co-founders of, of Kava, uh, Ted Eich and Chef Dimitri. At the time, they had a single full-service restaurant that still exists out in Rockville, Kava Meze, and had opened a second in Capitol Hill and uh, began selling their dips and spreads in about eight local Whole Foods, and they needed help with that business. And um, actually got introduced to a friend of mine from college who's Ted's cousin introduced us, connected us. And uh, started actually consulting with the guys, helping them. And we hit it off. They asked me to come on board full time. And we co-founded the Fast Casual, which really was the idea of taking the food from our full service restaurants and what we did in Whole Foods and putting it in this fast, healthy, accessible format, which has since you know, grown to uh, 106 locations across the country and also afforded us the the opportunity in late 2018 to acquire a struggling public company in our space called Zoe's Kitchen, uh, which actually then uh, almost quadrupled our size. Uh, and uh, so that brings me here today. That's awesome. Uh, Brett, thank you so much. And um, uh, it's <laughs> there's so many different directions to go, but let's actually start with um, your hopes, dreams, and plans in January of 2020, <laughs> um, you had acquired Zoe's Kitchen. You had you were working on figuring out how to integrate things. So, so what were your goals coming into this year? And then we'll turn to um, how reality may have uh, interrupted. Yeah. So as I mentioned, at the end of 2018, we took over control, closed the acquisition, and uh, and had to restructure the business. So 2019 was an incredibly challenging year for us. I like to say we went from a 10th grader to a grown-up adult overnight because we went from 75 restaurants at the time uh, to over 300 and an organization that was uh, much more broad and, and scaled and, and thousands more employees. 
And that required different muscles. You, you go from startup to growth and then to enterprise level at that point. And so we went through a lot of uh, integration and transition. And I, you know, I joked at the end of 2019 that, you know, that was the hardest year of my life, right? My hardest year of my career. Well, I take back everything I said about 2019. <laughs> it, it, uh, it was, um, you know, it, it, in a weird way, it prepared us for this year because it really tested our resolve. Uh, it taught us how to kind of look through all the noise around us and focus on what was mattering in the moment and got us through to a really good place at the end of 2019. And we entered the year with a ton of momentum. We actually, uh, going into the first week of the pandemic, we were 10% ahead of plan and uh, had a number of initiatives in flight, some of which you know, got accomplished, some of which got delayed. And it was really a, almost a sense of reprioritizing them. Interestingly enough, many of our initiatives were trends that were bubbling under the surface going into the pandemic. And I, I'd like to say that, at least in our industry, and I think this is true in a number of others, the pandemic has almost magnified or amplified certain trends that were bubbling underneath prior to the pandemic. So having those initiatives already in place, I think, uh, helped position us to be able to be uh, agile in adapting to the pandemic. Yeah, there's, I, I agree that a number of businesses uh, have had either programs or whole products or maybe their entire business actually be accelerated by the pandemic, right? It forced a set of things to happen much, much faster than they would have otherwise. And so I'm curious, can you give one example of that inside Kava, things that you were planning to do that now just, they move from the middle of the pack to the top of the list really quickly? Yeah, so we've always been passionate about our technology, but technology is uh, expensive, an expensive investment and it takes time and a lot of effort and talent. And, um, you know, delivery has been a, a, a hotly debated topic in our industry. And we've always been interested in delivery, but we also understand the pitfalls of delivery. It's a, it's a lower margin uh, channel, especially with third party uh, aggregators like DoorDash and, and Uber Eats. And you also don't have total control of your data and your guest experience. So fortunately we were having positive results and growth without needing delivery, like many legacy companies in our industry have been forced to do to grow their revenue. So we were patiently kind of wading into the delivery world. Well, clearly when the pandemic hit, our customer needs state changed and we needed to provide them the access that they needed to get our food. If they weren't comfortable or weren't able to leave their home, how could we get them their favorite Kava meal? And so we accelerated our delivery um, timeline as far as partnering with a third party or rolling it out and actually uh, integrating it within our, our app so that we would have native delivery uh, with an outsourced uh, courier provider. So those got accelerated. They were planned to be tested later in the year. We wound up launching them across the fleet within a matter of days. I mean, that's the, I think the interesting thing many of us have found out that some of these initiatives that can take six weeks or six months, uh, when, when, when you're put to the test, the team can rise to the occasion and, and launch these in, in a matter of days, six days or, or two weeks. So delivery was one and then curbside. Curbside was something we've discussed internally um, that can be relevant, especially we operate in California and parking is a, is a big challenge in Los Angeles. So we've, we had talked about curbside a number of times. And again, as a function of the pandemic, we stood up curbside across both um, our Kava and Zoe's properties, uh, kind of an MVP curbside 
that we're now investing uh, further into uh, more automated solutions for notification to make it a, a more frictionless curbside experience from what we launched as an MVP. But again, these initiatives uh, were critical to uh, our ability to weather the storm. 30% of our revenue is currently coming from channels that didn't exist in February. Wow. Have you seen a change in your customer kind of personas or composition in that shift? So you had a lot of in-person dining, people coming in um, either time of day when, when densities or uh, the demographics or psychographics of the, of, the, of the customer base having shifted? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, I don't think the demographics or the psychographics have shifted as much as the gay part has absolutely shifted dramatically. So most uh, uh, customers that would get us as a lunch option near their office are now working at home and we're all on Zoom all day and often default to grabbing something out of the refrigerator down in the kitchen. But when our Zoom fatigue sets in at the end of the day and we've been holed up in our homes, we want to either go out and grab food to bring back or have food delivered. Uh, and so our, our lunch dinner mix has shifted pretty dramatically where many people uh, that used to traffic us for lunch are now trading into us for the dinner occasion. You, you brought up the office space thing. So I know a number of your locations are in, in and around city centers. Um, and I know a lot of businesses have shifted to remote, which means people like me who used to commute into DC and downtown DC, I'm not eating at any of those restaurants around there anymore. I'm, you know, I'm picking up stuff that's more geographically local to here has have those locations, have you had to adapt things for those locations? Have you had to expand their kind of catchment area? Like how have you dealt with that shift away from those, those locations that were probably supported by the office workers lunch rush? Yeah, well, fortunately this goes back to one of my earlier comments in the trends that were pre-COVID being amplified by COVID. And what we saw about four years ago was already the beginnings of a bit of a reverse urbanization where people were getting priced out of some of the, the top tier cities. Affordability was getting really challenging and people were starting to migrate down into the Carolinas from California into Texas and into Colorado and Arizona and Utah. And so you were starting to see the early um, indication of these population migration trends. Obviously COVID has added a whole nother set of circumstances that has accelerated those trends. And so about four years ago, we really embarked on a suburban strategy where we started to target states and cities uh, that had either were more of a second uh, tier city or had large suburban uh, trade areas. And then the acquisition of Zoe's really was a, you know, a doubling down on that. So our Zoe's footprint is almost 100% suburban, even if it's oriented around cities like Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, it's predominantly in the suburban market. So that's been a, a huge uh, advantage for us. Clearly, when our restaurants are oriented near residential rooftops, they are thriving. When they are dependent upon the vertical office worker, uh, it's much more of a struggle. So that's where you know channel mix really came into, uh, into play, whether it was curbside in the suburbs or delivery in the cities. We've seen delivery be a huge portion of our mix in the urban environment. So um, they're still, you know, at, at a big delta compared to our suburban stores, but our overall portfolio and our diversified 
our diversified portfolio allowed us to weather the storm better than most of our uh, competitors. So in a lot of ways, you were set up in advance, as you mentioned, for your 2019 activities with Zoe's and then just some of the other choices and observations you made. Uh, I want to shift to uh, your team. Uh, you've got, and you'll, you'll tell me, you've talked about hundreds of stores. That means you've probably got thousands of employees. Um, so how has it been, I guess, throughout this, finding ways to support them most effectively and kind of what are your observations been as, um, as a leader in, uh, you know, through this pandemic in an environment where you have a significant percentage of your, of your people are frontline essential workers? Yeah, communication and transparency. I think it's been really interesting for, for me, you know, last year um, with all of the challenges of the immigration merging two cultures, I think what, what we missed last year was the ability to have much more direct communication and contact downstream in our organization. And when we had a lot of turnover at the middle levels, there wasn't a lot of leadership communicating that downstream. So people felt disconnected from what we intended to do from what they thought was happening. I think what the pandemic in a strange way gave us the opportunity to do is have that direct communication with our team and also being really transparent, not being gloom and doom, but not being looking through rose colored glasses, uh, just trying to be realistic with them about the situation and be honest. And I think one of our biggest successes early on in the pandemic we, we stood up a COVID task force in February and we did uh, kind of this if-then planning, this uh, level one through level five, if, if this happens, this is what decisions we would make. So that they were on the shelf that as things deteriorated, we were able to pull those decisions off the shelf and not have to think about it in the moment because you, you never are gonna think about it as well when you're pressured in the moment versus having thought it through methodically beforehand and communicating to the team how we were thinking about it. So we enacted very quickly, um, twice a week, all hands on Zoom, a Monday and a Friday, kind of start the week, recap the week. And, and we're very honest. I mean, I think everybody recognized, I think the one thing that was interesting is we were all living in this together, right? This was all of us going through it personally and professionally. And that all of us in the industry took a massive hit in the beginning, revenues down 70, 80% those first weeks. And so it was saying, hey, we're gonna try and hold the line here, uh, but we can't guarantee that we may not have to retreat and we may have to furlough folks. Um, so we didn't give any, any, um, any false understanding of, oh, uh, everything's fine. Uh, you know, we're not gonna have to cut any roles or, or do any furloughs. So that when we did have to get to a point to enact some furloughs, it was very expected and people kind of held hands together and that, we're going to get through this together. And then that, in turn, in a sense, helped us operate and perform where we were able to bring all those people back from furlough, uh, you know, in a pretty short uh, period of time. So you talked about your employee kind of mix. You have, an, you have a number of kind of corporate headquarter type employees who probably could do their entire jobs from home. And then you have a lot of people who are, you know, showing up at a restaurant every day. Uh, how has, has the communications been uniform and have the, the people that are kind of in store and, and serving directly face-to-face -face with customers, are they experiencing something different? What's the, how have you managed that 
kind of hybrid reality? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's really always our challenge is to make sure that our restaurant and our field teams don't feel like a second class citizen to our what we call our support center teams. And so we literally call our what some people call a home office our support center because we exist to support our restaurants. And language matters, right? So we, we really try and use specific language to reinforce those behaviors and, and to reinforce that we're here to support our frontline restaurant team members. And then from a, from a pandemic perspective, you know, we can't take a one size fits all approach. So for our field team members, uh, we, we enacted a number of things immediately, 14 day paid quarantine. If you have been with someone that tests positive, uh, we were uh, paying for the tests early on. Uh, we did crisis pay, uh, you know, two months into the pandemic. We gave the team crisis bonuses, um, even doing shift alignments where to ensure that they would have a full work week, certainly PPE. And we erred on the side of caution. I mean, we closed our dining rooms before we were mandated early in the pandemic. We distributed masks to our teams before they were mandated early in the pandemic and required our customers to come in with masks. So really thinking about the, the health of our team members and our guests first and foremost and thinking through that lens. And then on the support center side, our office is open right now. Uh, we only allow up to 25 people. We typically would have up to 80 in the office. So it's not even a, a, you know, a third of capacity. We have a health log, temperature checks, wearing masks, social distancing. We probably get anywhere from seven to 15 people on a given day. Most of the time it's five to 10 because uh, you know, a lot of folks rely on public transportation and they're still not comfortable. And we, we understand that, right? We understand that across our 7,200 team members, people have a different risk tolerance and everyone's got a, you know, a different place on the spectrum of risk and comfort. And so we wanna be able to give them options for all of their needs, right? So a lot of times I'll be on Zoom and I'll see one of our team members maybe uh, stuck in their bedroom all day doing Zoom, hold up in a bedroom, whether they have roommates or they've got, they're back home with a number of family members all trying to use Zoom. And so some people want to get a change of scenery, want to get out a little bit, and we wanna provide a space for them to do that but it's voluntary. And if they're more comfortable at home, uh, you know, we've obviously got Zoom and other technology to allow them to be just as connected at home. So we've really tried to craft the solutions to the team members' needs uh, with the interest of their safety first. So I wanna go back to your 2019 experience and then coming into 2020 with, you had a, a culture alignment that you had to do with Zoe's. Has the pandemic, kind of accelerated that and, um, and or, you know, exposed challenges that you didn't know about and how, you know, how has that process gone overall? Yeah, I think it's been a positive in the sense of it's really coalesced the culture back to, uh, I believe, close to where we were uh, pre-acquisition, where we had a, a really energetic, thriving culture. And I think the acquisition, acquisitions always create a lot of uncertainty and, um, you know, uh, different, different outcomes for different folks. And so, again, with the communication, I think as the pandemic took hold, it, it, we had been doing a lot of building into 2020 and a lot of work on getting our culture back to where we wanted it to be. And I think the pandemic allowed us to kind of really solidify that and coalesce it where we were all in this together and rising to the occasion as a team. And I think the team also appreciated 
how we were thinking about them and how we were thinking about our guests in the business, going back to that transparency um, and thinking about their needs first. I think one of the things I tried to keep my finger on the pulse of and just thinking about myself, we're all going through this and, and the initial you know, four weeks or six weeks, it was almost an adrenaline rush reacting and thinking about how you were gonna deal with this curveball that was being thrown at us and the, the, the chaos of the situation. But then that adrenaline starts to wear off and I could feel it and sense it in the team. And so I implored them to get a break, to not be on Zoom back-to-back -back meetings. We even started to institute like a no tech hour from 12 to one. So you can't have uh, be on Zoom from 12 to one. You can't have Zoom meetings after 2 p.m. on Friday because you can say this to your team all you want, but they're not always gonna do it unless you put these guardrails in place. So it's really thinking about what guardrails can you put in place to be forcing mechanisms for the, the things you're trying to, um, to support them with or implore them to do. Uh, so I think really giving them a sense of, hey, we understand what you're going through. We wanna hear from you. We, we do surveys, we get feedback, what's working, what's not. Would you wanna do a social gathering outside of work? And really being there to support them, not just professionally, so that we all have jobs and have a successful business through this, but, but personally as well, um, you know, because this is, a, this is a stress on everyone that we've never dealt with before. That's a really, uh, it's a really good point about at times being more prescriptive in this moment. Like we're at Upside, we're generally like, we treat everybody like adults. You've got real ownership, you do what you need to do. And part of what we're realizing is, is that for some people doing what I need to do might be working 15 hours a day because that's like the safe place they can control something as opposed to dealing with the rest of the world. And so it's uh, finding those guardrails as you put it is really important. Uh, I'm curious, just gonna follow up some questions that have popped in um, uh, in the chat, have, have you found going back to your strategy, uh, and you can apply it to Zoe's or you can look at it uh, uh, on your observations in the kind of suburban or second tier cities, have you found any advantages from a talent standpoint to support those businesses? Has it been either, let me say this way, has it been easier or harder to find the kind of staff that you want to, um, to kind of lead your, your teams as you've opened up new markets in those second tier cities? It tends to be easier. Um, you know, sometimes it's trade area specific, but in general, it tends to be easier. I think uh, a little bit larger uh, workforce pool that, that we typically pull from and uh, not quite the reliance on public transportation um, and that we have locations that have a lot of parking. So people can literally, you know, if they're driving to work, they have a place to park versus some of our more urban oriented locations that that's not as much a, a possibility. When you go back and look at going from, I'm going to go in the way back machine here on this question, from Kava sit down restaurant, Kava Mesa sit down restaurant, get into fast casual. What were your expectations kind of from that standpoint to the fast casual place? And then did you anticipate that you would take this next big leap kind of quadrupling the business? And was that sort of always part of the plan? Were you opportunistic? So how did you go from full service to fast casual? What were your expectations there? And then from those first, you know, getting up to 75 stores to deciding to make the leap to, to go to 300? 
Yeah, the, the, the idea for the fast casual when, when I was talking with my partner is really about unleashing our Mediterranean cuisine, which is one of these rare cuisines that unites taste and health, uh, where you don't have to sacrifice flavor or, or satisfaction and you can walk away feeling like you ate better. And so it was, how do we bring this to more people at a, a more affordable price point in a more convenience-driven uh, environment? And so we, we had belief that there was a real need for this. Uh, we were seeing fast casual start to grow as a category. Uh, and, you know, so we, we started with uh, a plan of, we raised some friends and family money, opened, uh, the plan was to open two to three locations and it, you could feel it start to build. And then by the time we opened our fifth location, I think we knew this had a lot more runway uh, and was a real need for, for people. Uh, the acquisition was very kind of out of left field opportunistic where the, the opportunity was brought to us. And as we dug into it, it became a very interesting way for us to scale more rapidly. Um, you know, I like to say uh, restaurants don't scale like SaaS software. <laughs> it, is, it is a big lift. You know, it takes a lot of capital. It's a lot of physical spaces and a lot of people, right? We've got 7,200 employees today. And so... Um, we knew as we were going through our journey that when you reach a certain critical mass of restaurants per, per million people in a market, it creates kind of a network effect of awareness as well as operational and supply chain critical mass. So it was the idea of how do you, how do you compress that timeline? And, and that goes back to the conversions that I, I spoke about as part of the plan, uh, you know, and what we did in Colorado is that it takes us a third of the construction time and half the cost of a, a greenfield restaurant build to convert one of our Zoe sites that may be underperforming or that we believe by applying Kava to that real estate, we can unlock some significant value. Um, and so that was really the, the, one of the big theses behind the acquisition that we're now trying to prove out. It's, uh, it's interesting to me, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs um, who have done it a few times have experienced it where when you look in the rearview mirror, it all looks like, yeah, that was all part of our genius plan. When you actually are in the moment, you're thinking, well, if I could just get to the fifth store, that would be good. <laughs> right? And not sort of die trying. Uh, and so it's very helpful to understand, you know, the journey that you, that you go through to get to that place. Um, I'm on that same kind of, I guess, zone. Have you, as you look at, I guess sort of the go forward now, you know, you've got things I mean, whatever level of control you can have during the pandemic, uh, things are in a, in a track where you've got a game plan. How are you managing your planning now? Like as you look at 2021 or 2022, and as you point out, you know, opening a new store is not something you go like this and say, Hey, the new feature is live, right? There's a planning cycle to it. So how are you, kind of defining your expectations for the context that you're operating in over the next, you know, let's say year. And then how are you doing your planning within that? Yeah, we're, we're in the thick of it right now. I mean, we're, we're literally finishing up our 2021 plans, financial and strategic. And the, the, the two things that I think we're really focusing on is in thinking through what we were contemplating pre COVID versus how we want to go forward are what, what is a means to an end in COVID and what is a true behavior change in COVID? 
you know, how are people, we're all being rewired from a behavioral standpoint. Every month this drags on. And so what are those behavior changes that are permanent that we need to understand the impact on our business versus what are the things that have changed in COVID that are simply a means to an end that may go by the wayside uh, on the other side of COVID and use those as filters to then say, pre-COVID, all this stuff we had in the plan, what do we go forward with? What do we do not? Start from there. And then once we filter that out, take those behavior changes and say, what's not in the plan that we're not addressing those behavior changes? And, and you know, that, that can give you a, a plenty to do <laughs> for the next 12 months. Yeah, as a leader, we're always doing a little bit of contingency planning, right? Like, you know, to your point, what ifs? I think the, the range of possibilities is a lot wider and the severity of anyone seems to be there. Uh, so you, you brought up kind of things that will continue post-pandemic and then things that maybe that, you know, might fade, fade away. What are one or two things you think will, our behavior changes that will be, uh, we'll see in five years? I think it's been pretty well documented. I mean, digital adoption has been, you know, you've accelerated three to five years of digital adoption in three to five months. Um, so many different age groups, whether you were a more digitally proficient or not, you are using it more and you are interacting with more different verticals and businesses in a digital way than you did back in February. So I certainly think digital adoption has been accelerated, but I, I like to say a line I've always used, it, it, you know, because we are at, at our roots a hospitality company and we do believe in the Mediterranean way of life that is this kind of lost art, these analog pleasures of sharing a meal, right? Of, of committing your time to, building a relationship with someone over a meal, or even sharing a meal in our restaurant with our teams. And that can be a little counterintuitive to technology, right? Convenience, frictionless, things like that. So we try and think about how we can use technology to enhance the human experience, not replace it. And I think that becomes a bigger imperative uh, more than ever, even more than before, in how we continue to humanize our experience while giving our uh, customers the, the controls, the keys to the, the, the cop of the car. I, I like to say like we all have this remote control to the world that gets more powerful for us to use every day. And if a brand isn't malleable to the, to the will of your remote control, you're gonna get frustrated and you're gonna wanna go to uh, and traffic other brands that you're able to create this one-to-one -one control with or relationship with. And so we, we try and think about how we reconcile that paradigm with creating this you know, humanity and these analog pleasures of what food and sharing a meal truly stands for. So with that in mind, with the kind of the planning piece of it, and, and I agree with you, I actually think there may be a rush back to the desire to be in person and to be together because we've been kind of without for so long. How do you, how are you planning for a vaccine rollout? You know, you talked about uh, requiring your employees to wear masks early and giving them PPE. You talked about having your customers wear masks when they came in for pickup. Do you have a strategy that you're putting in place around, let's assume we're in the middle of 2021 and some subset of the population has had vaccines, they have various efficacies. Are you doing anything right now to plan for that? 
Yeah, so we think about it much in the way of, um, you know, in, in 2018, we announced uh, paid time off for our team members to vote, uh, to make sure that they could go cast their ballot to vote and that they weren't worried about being late to work or missing work or missing out on pay. And, and we're doing that again this year. And we've provided internal resources where uh, if you're a poll worker, you can get a free meal at Kava. And so with a vaccine, we want to put in kind of a support system and the infrastructure to help enable them and facilitate their ability to get a vaccine as it becomes available. Um, you know, as far as mandating a vaccine, that's not something that I believe we will, we will wind up doing, but we will continue to have the safety measures for a long time until uh, I think we all see that in the population that this is mitigated and controlled. Uh, because I, I think that it's gonna be a while before a vaccine is inoculated enough of the population where we can get back to the type of congregating and uh, in-person experiences that we were used to pre-COVID. Um, you know, we, we are planning that uh, we are in this kind of current paradigm for at least another nine months and that it will slowly work its way back to normal as a vaccine works through the population. You talked about not mandating. Do you think can you imagine having being in a hybrid situation where some of your employees are comfortable getting vaccines and therefore they wouldn't have to use the same PPE? Or do you figure you're just going to, whether you've got vaccine or not, you're just going to have everybody be uniform? Well, we're going we're gonna to listen to the scientists and the medical, uh, the, the medical community because I think we're all learning more every day about how this vaccine works. Or I'm sorry, about how the, the virus affects us, how the virus right. works. And I'm sure we're gonna learn a lot more about how the vaccine works and what's going to be required, what's not, what is in the interests of public health and what's not. So I think that remains to be determined, uh, but we are looking forward to supporting our team members to be able to get access to that vaccine. Awesome. All right, we're gonna do a speed round here in five minutes. So you get to keep, do your 30 second answers. Um, I, I've tried to save the ones that are at least semi easy for you. Uh, so. Uh, first off, have you had to uh, have you had to close down any stores, um, underperforming stores through this period of time? Um, and uh, you know, if so, was there were there indicators that they were struggling ahead of time and they were kind of they were going to struggle, or was it new information? Yeah, one of the you know talking about accelerating some of the pre-COVID strategies, we had a, a number of our Zoe sites when we acquired the business that we had qualified as non-strategic. So they really weren't in the long-term strategy of the business. And the pandemic gave us an opportunity to terminate a number of those leases. So it accelerated the ability uh, of us to be able to dispose of those uh, less desirable sites in the portfolio and really clean up our portfolio. We did temporarily close a number of restaurants that we've since reopened uh, as the numbers justified and some of the more restrictive lock lockdowns were relaxed over the course of the pandemic. On the Kava side, we, we only have two locations that are currently temporarily closed, and that's Union Station in DC and, and Reagan National Airport at DCA, transit-oriented sites that clearly uh, are challenged right now given the lack of travel. Got it. Um, okay, next up, have you identified any talent uh, characteristics that you're looking for either more of now than you were before because you've learned something new about it as you're hiring people. Because I'm sure with 7,800 employees, you've hired people along this journey just to keep your ranks full, et cetera. So are there one or two characteristics you 
have either elevated to the top or added to your mix for uh, looking for talent to join your teams at any level in the organization? Yeah. Um, this ones that we had kind of prior that have only been magnified is uh, positivity and perseverance. <laughs> Clearly two that, that work well in the pandemic. And then, uh, you know, intellectual curiosity and critical thinking, I think are, are incredibly important. It's interesting. I'm finding that more and more roles and responsibilities these days are a combination of left and right brain, where I think in the past they used to be a little bit more segmented between the two. We find that a lot of our roles now have evolved to where you need creative thinking and that intellectual uh, curiosity matched with process and discipline a little bit, which sometimes for a lot of people can be a little bit conflicting. Um, so we really try and find team members that have that uh, that diversified makeup. Okay, last last two. This one should be pretty quick. What from your first Kava store to your second Kava store? About how long did it take, and was there sort of a key metric you were you were looking for from a performance standpoint to give you the confidence to open the second store? Yeah. So when we raised the friends and family money, it was with the goal of opening two to three. So we did take it was a year between number one and number two. Uh, simply we were looking for the right location. I think the interesting moment came after we were at store number five, where we took a year and a half off and wanted to kind of do a retrospective and say, what's working, what's not? Because we were, at that point, felt like we had something that, that had a lot more uh, runway to go. But if we were going to start growing faster, we wanted to work out the kinks or perfect it before we committed to growing faster. So that was after our fifth restaurant. We didn't open uh, another cluster of restaurants for about uh, a little bit over 18 months. And it allowed us to really kind of perfect and hone our model and what, what was going to, uh, to help, uh, help us grow in the future. Awesome. All right, I have, uh, I have one last challenging opportunity for you. Uh, and um, you probably know this because I know you're highly tuned into things in the world. But uh, today is World Animal Day, and we have a very observant crew of people. So we would like to get an introduction to what, who or whatever that is in the blue chair. I'll, I'll, I'll bring him over. He, uh, oh, I got to wake him up. So uh, this is a cat, but he, <laughs> he acts more like a dog. <laughs> so his name's Spike. We, we have a dog, but the cat, I think, is more of a dog than the dog. <laughs> awesome. Well, th thank you for joining us and for uh, introducing us. Um, really appreciate your time and your, uh, and your leadership. Uh, I'm sure that not only are your employees, but I know uh, probably millions of customers are benefiting. So, uh, so thank you for your time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Founders Focus. What did you think? You got any feedback for us? Got a topic that you'd like us to discuss or maybe a future co-host? We'd love to hear from you. Just hit me up on LinkedIn at tscottcase and uh, join us at foundersfocus.com to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join us live every week at our Founders Focus sessions. Hope to see you there.